I would like to speak tonight from the subject, subtle. Everyone say subtle. Now, if I were to define the word, simply put, it means it is something that is difficult to perceive. The goal with our tech team, we have had meetings, we talk about it. The goal is to always do things subtly, so they're difficult to perceive. The lighting, the level of the sound, we move slowly if possible because we don't want anyone to go deaf in the service, you know. Subtle, something that is hard to notice or to see, something that is not obvious. Subtle, it means small incremental changes that are hardly, if at all, detected. I wonder if you've ever had a friend that struggled with subtlety. Somebody that was prone to blurt things out. Somebody with no filter. I think we all know somebody like that. You know, subtlety can come in handy. And to all the single people in the room, can I just give you a word of advice? A little subtlety will help you. And I would not recommend if you see somebody that piques your interest Starting by saying, I am attracted to you. Be mine. Perhaps a group date would serve you better. When you're offering feedback or correction to somebody, you know, a little subtlety is beneficial. If you know somebody or come across somebody with rank BO, just for an example, I would suggest that you don't say, you stink. Have you heard of deodorant? But instead, this is Subtlety 101, instead give them a nice smelling shower gel for Christmas. Hopefully they will get the message. Actually, that's probably more passive aggressiveness than subtlety, but, but I digress. Everyone say subtle. Now, when you study the scripture, there is something known as the first mention principle. And when you are studying a subject, a word, or a theme, if you find where it is first mentioned, you will gain valuable insight and perspective. And tonight, my aim and what I feel commissioned by God to talk to us about is the nature of our adversary. I feel like my goal tonight is to expose a little bit of hell's tactics and how he seeks to work in the lives of every living person and every believer under the sound of my voice. And I find it interesting that when we are first introduced to our adversary, the devil, in Scripture, he is described in a specific way. Of course, we find him first as a serpent in the Garden of Eden, tempting Eve. But I wonder if you remember the adjective used to describe him. Genesis 3 and 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so here in his first introduction in Scripture, the devil in the form of a serpent is described as subtle. The word, it means cunning and crafty in the negative sense, of course. And this certainly is how our enemy works. To me, this is a very appropriate description of Satan because he never comes right out and plainly describes his tactics he is not going to elaborate on the entirety of his temptation when he offers it to you. He will portray for you the pleasurable side of sin, but never the painful side of sin. Let me tell you today that the enemy of your soul will never try to take you out with the big right hook in the boxing ring of life. I would say that he never, he, he would not come after you with the obvious, the obnoxious, or the overt sins first. He is far too smart for that, and he's been at this a long time. Rather, the devil resorts to subtlety. He always starts small. It's the small boxes, foxes that spoil the vine. It's just a little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. Everyone say he's subtle. Now, the end result of Eden was, as we know, that the entire human race would be plunged into sin and destined to be separated from God. What devastation came as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience. But I'll tell us tonight and remind us that it didn't start with their eviction from Eden. It didn't begin with a flaming sword guarding the way back in. I don't seem to remember the serpent mentioning any of that at all, in fact. He never mentioned eviction. 
He never mentioned painful childbirth. He never mentioned that the ground would be cursed and that there would be thorns and thistles, toil and sweat as Adam would work to cultivate the earth. He conveniently left all of that out because the devil never shows you the end result of sin when he is tempting you. But it started with a subtle questioning and rewording of God's singular command. Yea, hath God said, and rather than taking God verbatim, ye shall surely die in the day that you eat of the fruit, he twists it and he adds a word and says, ye shall not surely die. Just subtle changing and twisting of what God had said. In fact, the devil even masked the temptation and the disobedience to God in a good intention. Genesis 3 and 5, for God, he said, doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. You're going to know good and evil, and that sounds great, right? I believe that one of the reasons that Eve eventually ate the fruit was because that she was convinced that doing so would make her wise. In fact, the Bible tells us that's what she thought, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's when she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. She saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and that it would make her wise. This is the devil's tactic. It was through his subtle craftiness that the devil sought to appeal to The lust of the flesh, it was good for food. The lust of the eye, pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life, it's going to elevate me, Eve thought. I'm going to be wiser than I am right now. All three in one fell swoop. Again, I'll say the devil is very good at what he does. And it seems to me that Eve's disobedience, it wasn't done from a heart. You can think what you want. But I don't think it was a heart that wanted to disregard God or a heart that was just trying to be disobedient for the sake of it. It seems that her intentions were good. But oh, what turmoil would lay ahead at the end of that road of disobedience. And nothing has changed in the nature of our adversary from that day to this day. He is still as subtle as ever. Now tonight, I know that we can all think on people that we know, the people that we love. And and you've probably observed people in the past that have gotten tangled up in sin. Maybe you've seen someone you love backslide, a family shatter on account of a momentary fling or a lapse in good judgment. Maybe you've observed a life hung up by addiction, someone bound by bitterness or unforgiveness, and you thought, how did it get to that? How did they get there? The truth is nobody wants to get to these places of devastation and ruin. No one sets out on the journey with the intention of ending up in the ditch. And also, no one gets there overnight. Without question, I tell us tonight that there were small, incremental steps, what seemed like inconsequential choices that ultimately brought them to that place because it's always a slow fade from the altar to the door. Now tonight, I I, I know maybe what I will preach, it will hit hard in some ways, but I am preaching this way because I don't want any of us to be ignorant of the devil's devices. And so I just simply remind us how our enemy operates and and how he comes at things when he approaches us to tempt us and to bring us off course. He is subtle. For example, I would say tonight that the devil really probably has no chance of tempting many of us in the room with something like addiction or chemical dependency or illicit hard drugs. I, I don't know that that would be appealing to many of us. Maybe that seems like an extreme example, but certainly that issue does impact the lives of many. But I would say that if that was his intention, if the end goal, if the end game was to try to burden somebody and bind somebody in addiction, he's probably not going to start there. He's not going to get the silver platter and and put addiction on it and put uh, illegal substance on it and chemical abuse on it and put it under your nose and hope you take the bait because he's, he's too smart for that. He understands you're not going to fall prey, and it never starts there. That's far too overt. I would say that he likely wouldn't even start with something recreational, like a gateway drug. Even that is too obvious. But probably if I were the devil, 
And that was my goal. Here's where I probably would start. I would start with a friend choice, perhaps. Something subtle. When you start allowing somebody into your life who themselves participates in lifestyles that are ungodly, which certainly brings a higher likelihood that that will start you on a path toward whatever the sin may be. You see, embracing a close friend, somebody who does not share the same godly lifestyle or values that is far more easy to tolerate and justify than becoming addicted to an illicit substance. It's subtle, but the old saying still rings true. You show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. And I'm not talking about being unkind to people. Of course, we're to love people, and some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So I'm not talking about reaching the lost world. I'm talking about yoking yourselves together with somebody. But that's where I would start if I was the devil. And so that's why as a church, we raise the standard and we preach what the Scripture says. Like the prophet Amos, can two walk together except they be agreed? And what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? We're not just talking about being friendly. We're talking about fellowship. That's a two-way street. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? But here's the point tonight. The devil never begins with the sinister end result. He always starts with something subtle. The devil probably would struggle in tempting many of us with the myriad sinful lifestyles of our world today. Alternate orientations and casual hookup culture, disease transmission, etc. That would be a hard sell for the devil. If he puts that on his silver platter, most of us, I would pray, all of us would be able to say, no, I'll pass. It's easy to say no to that so he doesn't start there. He starts oftentimes, if I were the devil, I would start with, not with engaging in a lifestyle like that, but I would start with the media that people consume. Because we all understand this intrinsically, that the shows we watch and the songs we listen to and the voices we entertain, they influence our worldview a whole lot more than maybe we're even willing to admit. And through them, we can become desensitized to the world's standard of morality. It's through things like media and screens that even well-intentioned and unsuspecting believers can invite actors into their homes, most of whom hate God. And they suggest and depict every ungodly lifestyle imaginable. Now, now tonight, sin seeks ambiguity and secrecy, so let me just say it plain for a few minutes, that we may not realize that over time what used to convict us and what we considered sinful, we are now comfortable with and accepting of. Maybe at one time we used to turn it off, but later we only started turning our head, waiting it out, and now we just watch it. Maybe at first profanity would offend us, but I wonder tonight, do we still cringe like we used to when we hear vulgarity and people taking the name of Jesus in vain and using it as a curse? Some would come to the point where they are entertained by the things that if they lived it out personally, they would be in sin. Now, if you're a parent with kids living at home, you are probably aware of the various entertainment companies infusing even children's content with characters that portray all of this mess. And our world would say it's no big deal. Our world would say it's to promote equality and inclusion. But can I just say, I see the sinister, subtle fingerprints of hell. Because it is quietly teaching our children that things that are contrary to the Word of God are acceptable. So tonight again, I'm glad that I'm a part of a church and I'm not condemning anybody. I just feel like I'm exposing the tactic of our adversary tonight. And we do raise a standard. And we do say that righteousness is still worth pursuing. And we say like the psalmist, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. And I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. We don't hate the sinner, but I do hate the work of them that turn aside. Job said in Job 31, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. It matters what we 
allow into the portal of our eyes and into the portal of our ears. It impacts our soul, which ultimately will impact our eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that the light of the body is the eye. The, the eye, it's like a lamp. And he said if your eye is single or if your eye is good, if what you allow in through that portal is good and wholesome and, and godly, then your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye is evil, Jesus said, then your whole body shall be full of darkness. Reasons. But here's where most of the world lives. He said, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? See, the world, they allow all that stuff into the portals of their eyes and their ears, and they think it's light. They think it's great. They think it's good. But he said, if you think what is actually darkness is light, how great is that darkness? That's a deep deception. So tonight I'll just say that the devil is very happy to change our convictions slowly over a period of time. One episode, one film, one scene at a time. And I think it behooves us every once in a while to take inventory and ask if our convictions are stronger today than they used to be. Or are our convictions today weaker than they used to be? Do the things that offend God, do they still offend me? Scripture is replete with strong statements like this one, 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 17, and the world is passing away. Why would you invest your affection in that anyway? It's all going to pass away and melt with a fervent heat. All of it's going away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Everyone say he's subtle. He's subtle. I would, I would hazard a guess tonight that the devil would probably struggle to get somebody, most of us, to just give up wholesale on their relationship with God, to walk away from the church. Because if he put backsliding on the silver platter, most of us wouldn't take the bait. But that's not where he starts. It's far too obvious. And if I were the devil, I would probably start with a small offense. Someone said something or did something and it hurt me. It's not that we aren't justified in feeling the sting of things like that. But if I were the devil, that would be the seed that I would use to try to get you off course with God. And I would see to it that that seed of offense became a root of bitterness springing up, troubling you and defiling many. I would get that root to break the soil, becoming a young sapling of unforgiveness. And once I get you harboring unforgiveness and anger towards your brother, then I know that I've fractured your relationship with God. Because we all understand that we only receive forgiveness from God as we forgive others. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with the obvious and the overt. Unforgiveness and anger. He starts with a seed, maybe something like a fence. And now it's only a matter of time as you grow more distant from God in this state before you disconnect fully. But as a, as a people and as a church and as your leaders, we hold up the standard and we say things like what Jesus said, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has ought against you, not even that you are offended at them. Jesus took it to a higher standard and said, if you just know that they're offended at you. That's a high standard. That's a high bar. But Jesus said, this is what you need to do. Leave your gift at the altar. Go your way. And first be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your gift at the altar. Go back and gain your brother first. And then come back and, and we can get this whole worship thing going on again. Paul said in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, put that away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. But again, the point, the devil never begins with the sinister end result. Not many would be tempted by the root of bitterness, unforgiveness, or backsliding. The devil always starts with something subtle. You see, when somebody ends up sidelined by sin, it never happens overnight. It was undoubtedly a process. It was that slow drip 
that wore down their convictions. It was one small, subtle influence, one small, subtle step after another. That's just how the devil works. And beyond it being his tactic, it's just our human nature to not really notice these incremental changes as they are happening until one day we wake up and it's farther along than we ever dreamed. It was Mark L. Winston, an author, who said, we are prone to accept death by a thousand little cuts. That's why we eat McDonald's. We know it's not improving our health. And if you think it is, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It's not a step in the right direction. But here's the truth. We're okay with a step, a small step in the wrong direction because we know it's not going to make us keel over right now, Lord willing. Sometimes we become okay with just small, subtle steps, even in bad directions. I wonder if you ever heard of this. It's kind of this ubiquitous metaphor that's a part of culture these days. But have you ever heard of uh, how you can uh, boil a frog in water without it jumping out of the pot? I have an infographic for your aid tonight. But in short, they tell us that you can boil a frog alive and it's not going to try to escape as long as you do it slowly. Now, truth be told, if you research this, the findings of this experiment have since been challenged and even debunked. I think the frog actually will jump out of the pot. But nonetheless, it's just become so prevalent and pervasive, we still repeat it. And it does serve as an accurate representation of human nature. It is suggested that if you put that frog in boiling water, obviously the frog becomes uncomfortable extremely. And though it experiences some bodily harm, it musters its strength and it jumps out of the boiling pot. But if you take that same frog and you place it in room temperature water, it will stay put. It's comfortable. And rather than starting out at a boil, you instead start to increase that heat slowly. So slowly that the frog can't perceive the change taking place. Eventually, when the water does come to a boil, the same water temperature that immediately caused the frog to jump out the first time. But this time, by the time the frog even realizes what is going on, he is already cooked. And they tell me frog's legs taste like chicken, but I don't know. But isn't that the way that it works with us as well? If the enemy tried to tempt us with addiction, adultery, unforgiveness, many of us would recognize the danger and we would flee. We would jump out of the pot. So instead, he tempts us with a sip, a glance, a web search, a questionable friendship, holding on to an offense, something far less sinister and far more subtle. But my goal tonight is to help us to see that subtle steps are significant. Whether in the direction of what we've been talking about in, in the devil's direction or even in the direction of God. Small steps, subtle steps are significant. You, you've probably heard of Paul in the New Testament. He starts talking about, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I do. Right? And the things that I want to do, I just, I can't find it in me to do them. Well, I wonder tonight, do you know why it's easy to do wrong sometimes and hard to do good like Paul found? It's because consequences or progress are almost always delayed. You can't perceive the results of your actions in the moment most often. It was the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, that said, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You go and you violate some law somewhere, some, some criminal does that, and and they're not charged, they're not tried, and so what do they do? They, they go again, and they go a little further, and that's what happens. It's just our human nature, and we don't face the consequences immediately. We just kind of keep on pushing the envelope. Psalm 50, it speaks of God punishing the wicked, but he gets toward the end, verse 21, and God said, these things hast thou done. You, you've been acting out of turn. You've been acting wrong, speaking to the wicked out in the world. And he said, and I kept silence. I didn't let a lightning bolt come down. I didn't judge you swiftly. And because I kept silence when you did all of these things, you thought that I was altogether such an one as thyself. You thought I was no different than any other person. You didn't think I was a God that cared about righteousness or unrighteousness or good or evil. 
But he said, I will reprove thee, and I'm going to set it them in order before thine eyes. Wickedness will be judged. Don't take my silence in the moment as validation of your actions. Because not seeing instantaneous results, it certainly does make it easy to make bad choices sometimes and difficult to make good ones. And this is the problem with the writer of Psalm 73. He said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he looked at people living wicked lives and it looked as though wickedness was causing prosperity. And he said, how does this even make sense, God? How is that even fair? I thought you cared about this. I, I thought you were a, a just God, a righteous God. But it wasn't just that their wicked deeds seemed to lead to prosperity. It was also that his righteous deeds were seeming to lead to problems. He said, behold, these are the ungodly over here. They prosper in the world. They increase in riches. But me, verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain. I wonder if anybody can relate to the psalmist tonight. You you try your best and you do right, and it still seems like there's potholes along the road. I've been living right, and I don't even know if it's worth it, God. I've washed my hands in innocency for all the day long. I have been plagued. I'm chastened every morning. And he said, when I thought to know all of this, it was far too painful for me. And we love verse 17. It's powerful. He said, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I I got my perspective shifted. And it went from a temporal perspective to an eternal perspective because he said, then understood I their end. Everyone say their end. Just because a choice or an action doesn't bring about results immediately, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have an impact. In every choice, in every step, in every decision, even subtle steps, they are significant. We must consider the end of the road. Let us consider where these subtle influences will take us. Where will I end up if I keep repeating this same choice over and over and over? Felt appropriate tonight, and this is where we will end, to take a few moments and talk about the judge in the Old Testament by the name of Samson. Now, if I were to highlight the main characteristic of Samson, if, I were, if we were to use one word to define him, what, what would you say that it would be? Strength. Would you agree? Samson was a strong man. And it seemed like at every turn, in every situation, in every season, he was always strong enough to handle whatever was thrown at him. And throughout his life, Samson was used powerfully by God to defeat the enemy Philistines at different times using this God-given strength. You may know this, but Samson was a Nazarite from his birth, and that means that there were certain things that Samson was not permitted to do. And they're on the screen. A Nazarite vow required the person to abstain from all wine and anything else that was made from the vine. A Nazarite vow required a person to refrain from cutting their hair, allowing their locks on one's head to grow. And also, it required... A person to not become ritually unclean by contacting dead things, corpses or graves, even those of family members. And so it was through this Nazarite vow of consecration that God would grant Samson his incredible strength. It's a a powerful story and you read through all the exploits of Samson and it's inspiring and it's amazing. And I mean, one man and the jawbone of a donkey killing a thousand Philistines is just You know, it's the stuff of legend. But many of us know how Samson's story ends. And it's not really a pretty sight. It ends with him being a prisoner of the Philistines. Judges 16.21 tells the story. So the Philistines, they captured him and they gouged out his eyes and they took him to Gaza where where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. And so here at the end of his life, at the end of the story of Samson, he is a prisoner of of the enemy Philistines, and he is bound in chains. And again, you see a story like this, you see a character like this, and you have to ask the question, how does it get to a point like this? How does somebody get so far gone that they lose out with God like this? Well, many think that it's because that his hair got cut off. But that is not entirely true. The long hair, as we already went over, it was just one of the several requirements of his Nazarite vow. 
And when Samson allowed his hair to get cut off, it was just the most recent violation, the most recent step of disobeying God, violating his consecration before the Lord. It was the thousandth cut, if you will. It was the tipping point in his disobedience. And that's why he ends up in this plight. See, in Judges 14, and I will hasten to a close. Music, you can join me. In Judges 14, Samson, we read about him hanging around the vineyards in Timnah. And, and I just, it begs the question, Samson, why are you hanging out in vineyards? You're not supposed to touch the fruit of the vine. You're not supposed to drink strong drink. And for somebody who wasn't supposed to drink wine, this is not the best place to hang around. But he took a step, and nothing seemed to happen. He goes about his business. The Lord still has him empowered with strength. But I'll tell us tonight, it was a subtle step in the wrong direction. And just because God didn't immediately strip him of his strength, and just because the consequences of the step were deferred and delayed, it does not mean that God approved of the step. And so he ends up having a run-in with a lion near one of these vineyards, and the Bible tells us that he kills it. And later on his way back to that same place, Timnah, he turns down that same path, and he finds a beehive in the carcass of the lion. And he knew that he wasn't supposed to touch it. He knew that his consecration, his Nazarite vow, prevented him from touching dead things. But nonetheless, he decides to eat the honey out of this carcass of the lion. And, and it did refresh him. In fact, he, he took some to his parents. And even though he was violating his Nazarite vow, he still had his strength. And he keeps going about doing things for God. At every turn, it seems like Samson is just willing to violate his vow of consecration before God. And in his mercy, God does not strip him of that strength. Samson is still gifted. Samson is still used. But it is not the same thing as God approving of the steps that Samson is taking. Now, Samson, his most significant struggle is with lust. You know, maybe we don't understand a Nazarite vow in the year 2023, and maybe we don't really understand why it's, you know, such a big deal if he's not partaking to just kind of be around a vineyard. Maybe we don't understand why it would be such a big deal to take honey out of the carcass of a lion. That doesn't really compute with us, but, but his most significant struggle was with lust. And in Judges 14, Samson almost marries a Philistine girl. Again, not a great step. These are the very people that God has called Samson to eradicate. These are enemies to God's people. In Judges chapter 16 now, Samson is found with a prostitute. And then again in Judges chapter 16, you know, the, the story we all know. Samson falls in love with yet another Philistine woman. This time, her name is Delilah, whom the Philistines used to find the secret of Samson's strength. And after several attempts and much pressure, Samson finally gives in. He shares the secret of his Nazarite vow. And the final piece of the puzzle, if you will, the one thing that up to this point he hasn't violated. He tells her, if my hair is shorn, I will become as weak as any other man. And while he is sleeping in the lap of Delilah, they shave his head. I know tonight that it seems like the hair maybe was the key to his strength. What I hope you realize is that it really wasn't just about that one step. It was about his consecration as a whole. And there were several other steps along the way in the wrong direction that brought him to this moment. And then she cried out, Delilah does, and says, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. 
And when he woke up, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, he thought, I will just do as I have before. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. All those steps, all those choices along the way, maybe he got the idea because judgment wasn't executed each time that God was okay with it. But it got too far. And now the Lord takes the strength. The Spirit of God lifts off that man of God and he ends up in chains. But can I tell you tonight, it didn't start there. It didn't start with chains. It started with choices. The enemy wants to take you out, mark it down, count on it. His aim, his goal, his tactic is to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. The goal of hell is... The goal of hell, he is a lion, Peter would say, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. He is after your soul. He is after your eternity. He would like nothing more than for you to spend all of eternity separated from the presence of God just like he will be. And the enemy knows that if he shows you the end result of sin, he knows that if he shows you the chains, he knows that if he shows you the the Philistine banquet hall. And he, he knows that if he shows you your eyes being gouged out, that's not much, much of a temptation. So he doesn't show you as a slave to sin. He doesn't show you the chains of addiction. He just tries to get you to make small accommodations for sin. Just one little link, one small step in the wrong direction. But subtle steps are significant. Now, this is not original with me. But I, I felt this acronym was helpful. You see, it always starts with choices. But if you make the same choices again and again, we understand that choices, they become habits. And habits, it gets to the point where we don't really think about it. It's kind of what a habit is. It just becomes automatic. And unfortunately, if you do something long enough again and again and again, you start to believe that it's just your identity. This is just who I am. I've always struggled with this. There's no way that I could ever be different. And after a while, it just becomes second nature. And before you know it, you find yourself in chains. But again, it didn't start with chains. It started with a choice, Samson. There was a calling on your life. God had called you to eradicate the enemy. God had called you to consecration. And just small steps, but it led you to this place. It's what Jesus said in John 8. I tell you the truth, that everyone who sins, there's only one outcome of sinning. You become a slave to it. The writer of Proverbs, he said, an evil man is held captive by sins. They're like ropes. They're like chains that catch and hold him. I know it's maybe fallen out of fashion to preach about living righteous, and maybe it's a little old-fashioned to say that, that we ought not to abstain from sin, but I just want to raise the standard tonight. And, and if I could just spare somebody, if, if I could preach to a young person or a middle-aged person and just say, you don't have to be bound by sin and you don't have to be bound in chains, but you can make some right choices today in the right direction and know that subtle steps are significant. I would be remiss if I didn't give you the the actual ending of Samson's story didn't end pretty when he's bound in chains, but Samson did find a place of repentance there, which means it's never too late and you're never too far gone that you can't turn to God and make things right. And the Bible tells us that when he prayed, God, would you remember me? And would you strengthen me again? Just this once, God, in that last moment of his life, Samson defeated more Philistines than he had in the rest of his life. So God can still use somebody that has been waylaid by sin. But I just want to encourage somebody tonight, challenge somebody tonight. And I couldn't get away from the words of Paul in Ephesians. He said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Excuse me, Galatians. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It doesn't feel sometimes when you're sowing little seeds that you're really doing anything of significance. But if you sow to your flesh... And not just so, the scripture says soeth, which means a continual action. 
you will of the flesh reap corruption. It always ends in corruption. It's going to end in chains and bondage. But he that soweth to the Spirit, you just sow and you keep sowing and you pray and you keep praying and you're faithful and you abstain and you turn away again and again and again. And eventually you will start to reap of the Spirit life everlasting. And then the admonition, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so I know that we're talking about what sin will do to us, but I just want to encourage somebody, every time you fight temptation, every time you say no to what the devil puts in your face, and every time you see sin for what it is, and you say not today, and you shut the door, don't be weary in that. Don't be weary in well-doing. for You will reap a harvest of life everlasting. Subtle steps are significant. Stand together with me. We're going to pray around the altar in a moment, but as I was seeking God for this service, I said, Lord, why? Why this word? Why at this time? I could not get away from the fact that Jesus is soon to return for His church. And I'm not, I'm not come to indict anybody, condemn anybody, or make anybody feel bad, but I would not be preacher doing my job if I if I didn't challenge you to come out from among them and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Because the kind of church that Jesus is coming back for it is a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so I, I would challenge somebody tonight that if you've been making some steps in a direction that maybe is contrary, maybe it feels like it's fine because there's no swift judgment from the Lord, I would call you tonight, and the Lord would call you to a place of repentance, to lay it on an altar and say, God, I'm going to start taking some more precaution, some steps in your direction, and get right. There's nothing worth missing the rapture for. There is absolutely nothing worth missing eternity for. Eternity is far too long to just play around and dabble. What if you'd find a place at this altar tonight and I preach what the Lord laid on my heart and thank you for your kind attention. But I pray and I would that there would just be a response from the people of God tonight. Come on, somebody, you can lay, lay aside bitterness and unforgiveness in this place today. Somebody today, you can lay aside every temptation, every activity that has got gotten you sidelined in sin and you can give it to God Lord cleanse us today Lord cleanse us today I want to encourage you that as you lift your voice that is not admission that you are some rank sinner that is just admission that you recognize that without God you can't do anything can you lift your voice when you come around this altar Lord I pray you'd help us right now I pray God that you would quicken somebody tonight Jesus, I, I would that none of these, like you prayed over your disciples, I've kept all of them. God, God, my prayer and our desire as pastors of this church, as leaders in this church, is that everybody under the sound of my voice tonight, that they would find a place to make sure there's no, no hidden thing, no secret thing, no, no dark corner of their heart where you are not welcome. God, we just lay bare before you tonight. Our prayer is that you'd cleanse us. Jesus, our prayer is that you would help us to walk this narrow way. Jesus, we repent. God, we turn away. Jesus, what steps we've been making, God, in untoward directions. God, we turn toward you again. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord. We are right where the Lord would have us to be. Just pray that prayer. Make it personal. Would you just lift your voice a little bit right now? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray a cleansing in my mind. Jesus, I pray a cleansing in my heart. Let there be no wicked way found within me, God. Lord, let every word that I speak, 
let the meditations of my heart, God, let every part of me, every fiber of my being, let it be pleasing in your sight, I pray. Jesus, for every sin of commission, God, for every sin of omission, any way that I have displeased you, God, I pray for your forgiveness. I turn to you fully. I turn to you fully. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, the Lord has not come. There is therefore no now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Come on, there's been a turning tonight. We're not walking that way anymore. So there's no condemnation here. The conviction of the Lord has drawn you to the foot of the cross again. So lift your head, child of God. Let there be a boldness tonight to recognize that we don't have to walk that way anymore. There's strength by the presence of God. There's strength by the Spirit of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. come on just keep praying I just feel to tell us and remind us that it is our distinctives that make us powerful it is when we separate ourselves like that we draw a line in the sand and we say I'm not crossing that line anymore that is what this world is looking for they are looking for a people that are different they are looking for a people that are powerful by the spirit of God Hallelujah. Lord, we want to be the people that you need us to be in these last days. God, we want to be a people positioned for every use of the Master's hand. So God, we turn full full face towards you today. Come on, just lift your voice. I I feel an undercurrent, the confirmation of God's Spirit here tonight. Come on, we see hell for what it is. Satan, we see you for what you are. You are a liar and the father of lies. You are a deceiver. You're an accuser of the brethren. God, we will not fall prey to your devices or your tactics. God, we recognize that yes, there are pleasures to sin, but for a season. And yet there is a sinister side to sin. Hallelujah. So, Lord, we pray your strength on every child of God. Hallelujah. 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 Let us be a holy people, a people that raise the standard of righteousness in an ungodly age, we pray. Lord, I pray you'd break our heart for the things that break your heart. God, the things that are an abomination to you, the things that offend you, God, I pray that they would offend us.
Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Raise your, raise your hands all across the sanctuary if you would. A people that have repented and emptied themselves before the Lord, they are a people in prime position for the empowerment of God's Spirit. If you've never been filled with the gift of God's Spirit, speaking with other tongues as the initial evidence of that experience. Tonight, the Lord wants to fill you with His Spirit. You can be baptized in Jesus' name and have every sin washed. But everybody across the, uh, across the house with hands raised, just receive the empowerment of the Lord. The Lord wants that light within you to shine brightly like never before. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let a cry rise from this house tonight. Come on, just somebody receive from the Lord right now. If you need the gift of the Holy Ghost, just raise your hand. Somebody pray for somebody across the altar tonight. Hallelujah, 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 I want more of you, God. I want more. 